This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. On March 1st, every year, disability communities gather to mourn disabled people, murdered by their caregivers. Starting with a single vigil in 2012, Disability Day of Mourning has become an international day of remembrance with dozens of commemorations across the world. But while the movement itself has gained momentum, disabled people continue to face discrimination and remain at risk of murder and neglect by their closest caregivers. Disability Day of Mourning started out being controversial. It often felt like disability advocates were pitted against family members and caregivers. But as the movement has grown, there have been more opportunities for dialogue and discussion. What is clear is that the time for change is now. Today, we discuss Disability Day of Mourning. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juita Gupta and I'm the host of the program and also the producer of the program. And the reason I mention that I'm the producer of the program is because I make a choice intentionally every year to cover Disability Day of Mourning. Now I know that March 1st is behind us this year. It's just how the schedule worked out. But I do like to take some time at least once a year to recognize the very real danger that disabled people face from their closest caregivers. It's a topic that I think has been top of mind for many of us this year, people with disabilities, especially given some of the horrific conditions in long-term care homes where the elderly and disabled people have faced the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it does put this conversation about Disability Day of Mourning into a larger context around the pandemic. And I do feel that it's valuable to think about this issue around the death of people with disabilities by murder, by neglect, not just on this one day of the year, but every day of the year. With that said, although we had a pandemic, disability advocates from coast to coast in Canada, but also beyond Canada, did come together on March 1st to hold vigils, often virtually, to commemorate the people who lost their lives, people with disabilities who lost their lives um, because of actions or inaction on the part of their caregivers. One such organizer is Vivian Lee. Vivian is an organizer with Autistics United Canada and Vivian Lee, along with advocates from Autistics United Canada and other disability advocates, helped to organize one such commemoration, one such vigil for Disability Day of Mourning. Vivian joins us today from Vancouver, British Columbia to talk about the vigil and to talk about the importance of Disability Day of Mourning. Vivian, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you with us to talk about this important topic. Yes, thank you for having me here and for highlighting this issue. When we think about Disability Day of Mourning, what is the significance of the date to you? So, this is my day of mourning. Um, it's a day where we 
come together disabled communities around the world to commemorate those of us who were killed by their family or caregivers. And our focus here is, is to honor their lives, to honor them as human beings who had um, dreams, hopes, hobbies, interests. And we're also speaking out against the ableist narrative that disabled people are burdened and that our lives are not worth living. I'm going to get back to you about the narrative piece. It's such an important component to the conversation. But when we think about the people who have lost their lives, the people that you remember on Disability Day of Mourning, who is more likely to be the victim of murder? Is it someone who's younger? Is it an adult in an institution? Are we talking about the elderly? Is there a particular population that seems to be mostly at risk? This is really hard to confirm because they're not often reported in the media. It's very hard to find information about the rate that disabled people are killed by their caregivers. And and even when it's reported, uh, there's not much information given about the victims themselves. So from what we do see, because the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network has been collecting, uh, well, Um, garnering a database on this uh, at disability-memorial.org for many years now. We do see the most vulnerable groups, yes, young, very young, like several months old to toddler ages and the elderly. Uh, But we do see victims of all ages, all genders, all races. Um, The unifying factor is that they were killed largely due to their disability. Can you tell us a little bit, Vivian, about what happened this year with the pandemic? Uh, of course, in-person gatherings would likely not have been possible. How did things change in 2021 for you? Yeah, other than the numerous technical challenges of hosting it online, we held it via Zoom and live streamed it via Zoom. Our community has also experienced so much grief and mourning during the pandemic, just ongoing. We're, we're grieving on the community members. We have lost not just to the COVID virus itself, but also to government policies that treat us as an afterthought through discriminatory care rationing, um, triage protocols, the current vaccine implementation plans, um, definitely in the inadequate financial support for those on disability assistance compared to um, CERBs. And also the many who died in institutional settings, long-term care homes, for example, which themselves can often be places of abuse. As one of our speakers, Bill McArthur, a survivor of the women's institution in BC, spoke about some other speakers at our vigil also placed attention to the other ways that disabled people are killed by authorities, such as police, during caregiving situations like in wellness checks. Do you feel that the individual situations that that people deal with, the murders of people with disabilities, do you feel that those things exist along a continuum? Absolutely. I think they're all part of what we call systemic ableism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, a, A lot of the speakers did speak about the impacts of the pandemic through systemic measures, the government policies, and so on, and also the individual impact, such as being at more risk for abuse 
when you have to stay at home with um, a potentially abusive caregiver. This is not just unique to disabled people, but also to um, people who are experiencing intimate partner violence, a lot of gendered violence going on within homes and families right now. And one thing I want to highlight is that the systemic qualities of ableism arise in both the interpersonal interaction and in the societal policies and the cultural paradigms in which we view and treat disabled people. So absolutely, I think they're connected. Speaking of the cultural paradigm, the reporting of the the death of people with disabilities in the media often takes on uh, a certain tone where instead of couching these crimes as murders or as the consequence of neglect, often the media almost talks about it, the murder of disabled people by caregivers as an act of compassion. When the media couches the death of people with disabilities in that way, what are they saying about the value of the lives of people with disabilities? It's dehumanizing, plain and simple. Um, what I try to tell journalists is don't call them mercy killings. Don't make caregivers who kill disabled people in often horrific ways, too. Poisoning, gun shooting, beating them, severe neglect and starvation. There have been cases of rape and of intense abuse. And making that these people who kill to be martyrs. Um, interview disabled people about the issue, not just caregivers. Don't just describe the victim on the basis of how, quote-unquote, severe their disability may or may not be. We try to make commemorative statements for each of the victims that we read their names out with every year. And when trying to find at least some information from media um, articles to commemorate the victims, our volunteers are always struck by how hard it is to find at least one humanizing piece of information about the victims. My name is Chuita Gupta, and with me today is Vivian Lee from Autistics United Canada. We're discussing Disability Day of Mourning. Vivian, one of the ways in which Disability Day of Mourning has gotten to be a little controversial is this idea that uh, the Day of Mourning essentially pits disabled people and disability advocates against parents, against family members, against caregivers. What do you say to people who raise that criticism? Yes, this actually has come up in conversations among organizers and um, another organizer of this year's vigil. That's this talked about how those that criticize are clearly not considering the fact that they're criticizing people in mourning, criticizing people who are experiencing grief, which is pretty shameful. I also want to highlight that we're not anti-caregiver, we're anti-suicide. And, and that's a really important distinction to make. There are certainly challenges as a caregiver, but many of these caregivers who experience Experience challenges often don't murder their kids, 
don't murder disabled people. So if you don't justify or condone the murder of disabled people, we have no issue with you. In fact, I ask those who say that DG Land stigmatizes the parents of disabled people to join us at a vigil, share space with us, so we understand why we're holding the vigil in the first place, why we're honoring these victims, and, and listen to our experiences. Um, because many of us, including myself, have experienced abuse and violence from caregivers. You mentioned before the website where the names are gathered, disabilitymorning.com. And, you know, when I first looked at it, my I remember my eyes filled with tears. And it's really heart-wrenching because, as you pointed out, um, although it's really hard to find information about the victims of filicide, uh, they do try to pr- give you a full picture, a sense of who the person is or was. Outside of that one website, how effectively are we tracking the death of people with disabilities? Is law enforcement on top of this? Uh, is a uh, coroner's offices on top of this? Does the justice system deal with these issues adequately? What is your sense? I don't think that there is enough data tracking done by these institutions or by the government. Um, it's why ASDM has had to take it upon themselves to build their own database. Um, the government and its associated agencies need to collect robust independent data on the death of disabled people and the various violences that we face, not just murder, but hate crime and other forms of discrimination. And it, this should be disaggregated to consider factors like race, income level, gender, and other demographics. We've seen recently um, the BC Human Rights Commissioner already recommended that the government collect data disaggregated to address systemic racism. And we think that the field people should be part of this intersectional approach. Do you ever worry, like in this conversation comes up in the context of school shootings, for example, where um, there's a risk of copycat crimes, for example. Do you ever worry that when these issues get talked about in a particular way, couched in terms of mercy killings in the media, we talked about that a few minutes ago, do you worry about uh, the spawning of copycat crimes where it almost becomes permissible to kill people with disabilities? Yes, that is a big worry. The, the way that we're talking about these killings justifies them. And, and to me, that's abhorrent. Instead, I want to see the world focus on the victims. Like, I want to know about their dreams, their hopes. What what did they like to eat? Did did they have friends? Um, what could have been done to support them instead of kill them? There's also, when we talk about support, what about palliative care and so on? And now that's not to say that without support, a parent is then somehow driven to kill or a caregiver is somehow driven to kill. We want to make sure that connection is not being made because, again, that's another way that the media and the public are trying to justify murders. We've noticed that many of in the reported cases, um, and there are many that are not reported, that these parents are well off. They have access mm-hmm. to services. Some have even denied services, and yet they still kill their kids. And there are many of us within our own communities, disabled parents of disabled kids, disabled caregivers of disabled children, do not 
murder their kids. Um, and it's it's really hard to reference um, uh, MSS Schaber, who spoke at one of our previous vigils. How many ways can we tell the world not to kill Oba? How, how, how many times and how many different ways can we frame it to convince people not to do it? And, and with the media reporting the being the way it is right now, it, it, it's, it's really hard to convince people not to do this to convince people that no, these are not justified no matter what the situation is. Because in the end, you have a disabled person that's being killed. I'm just going to step away from the disability day of mourning and the vigil itself for a minute and talk to you about the changes that are underfoot with medically assisted dying legislation in Canada. One of the arguments that's been made by many disability advocates is that this is a way to make it easy for people with disabilities to end their lives by expanding MAID. What's your thinking around that? Do you feel as someone who's concerned about the victimization and abuse uh, of people with disabilities, uh, with disabilities, do you do you sort of see the connection there as well? Yes, and uh, that is something that several of our speakers at the vigil brought up and, and spoke quite at length about um, because those of us who are not only disabled, but also poor, racialized, at higher rates of being coerced towards medical assistance and dying due to our disability, but also due to other factors that marginalize us. It's a direct threat to our lives. I'm referencing, again, Seb Smith, another one of the CDOM organizers here who, who is also involved in the fight against those C7. And Seb spoke to me about how this affects people who are disproportionately impacted by poverty, um, seeing many stories coming from the community of people who are too poor to afford care, treatment, and so on, who are being essentially offered made as a care or treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of us are saying, why is this so-called choice to die when we're not giving the choice to live in the first place. Um, and, and Dignity Denied, uh, a, a group of disabled people, particularly poor and racialized people, have outlined this issue in great detail. I want to ask a little bit, because we've, we've kind of cycled around this issue for a little bit, but if we are saying that the death of people with disabilities is a function of ableism, is a function of under-resourcing services for people with disabilities. What then, in your opinion, needs to change so that people with disabilities are not victimized in this way? We are already talked about the way we speak about disabled people, right? Both in the media and the conversations about these murders. Education plays a key role. We need a large cultural shift to view disabled lives as worth living to understand the unequal power dynamics between caregivers and disabled people, um, the specific violence that we face, and also just the, the joy and strength of, of being disabled as well. Um, there is such thing as disabled pride. There are communities that are open and welcoming to disabled people and caregivers mutually and so on that would love to provide support if those that need help reach out there's, there's a big community waiting 
or funk, and I want to, because with, within the context of the pandemic, we've received requests from people who are saying, I'm, I'm suicidal, I feel like I want to die because I don't have the support to live right now, but I'm considering made. And, and it's something that we need more education about, not just for policy, but to directly help those that need help. Because reaching out to an individual person saying, no, your life is worth living, that you do deserve care and not violence, not murder. And that's a powerful thing that we all can do. It is. Vivian Lee, thank you very much for being on the program today. You were really wonderful to speak to, and you've done justice to a very important topic. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you again for talking to me about this super important issue. That was Vivian Lee from Autistics United Canada. Vivian joined us today from Vancouver, British Columbia. We talked about Disability Day of Mourning. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this conversation is difficult. For those of us who live with a disability, we experience violence of some kind almost on a daily basis, whether it's individual violence, whether it is institutional violence, whether it is systemic forms of violence, whether it is ableism in its many and varied shapes. So I want us to take a moment to take care of ourselves and to reach out and get support, whether that's through a crisis line, maybe it's reaching out to family and friends, maybe it's reaching out to some of those mutual aid networks that Vivian talked about. Please look after yourself because this was a tough conversation to have, but a necessary one. If you want to go back and listen to my conversation with Vivian Lee, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Do head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse for some remarks that I have. I want to thank Vivian Lee for being my guest on the program today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.